Giving us a five-star review is the equivalent of swiping right on the Son of a Pitch podcast on Tinder. So if you like the sexy, dulcet tones of Max and Vince in your ear holes, you know what to do. Give us a five-star review and a little sexy comment. Cheers. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Dylan, you son of a pitch. Welcome to the Son of a Pitch podcast, the podcast that does what, Max? It's the podcast that puts you, the listener, in the pitch room. Uh, And this is Vincent Max speaking. Hello. Uh, We're two young strategists finding our way in the world. And you might be asking, Max and Vince, what what, what is a strategist? Yeah, what are you? What What does that mean? What do you do? It's a good question. Basically, we figure out why ads say what they say and show what they show in order to get people to buy stuff give to a charity, or even change a human behavior. But it doesn't just stop there. I mean, basically, our job is to do whatever it takes to understand humans better so that we can say the things that they might relate to. And that means looking at psychology. It could be looking at economics, design thinking, data science, or really any of the subjects out there that might shed some light on humans. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've gone around Sydney and talked to the heads of strategy and creative to find out how they got to where they are, what's their career journey, what they've learned along the way, and their favorite marketing campaigns. But what makes this podcast different is that at the end of each episode, we ask one of these super smart people a really tough question. How do you get Australians to eat more kangaroo meat? How do you make Healy's cool again? How do you increase the ratings for the National Basketball League of Australia? So listening to the Son of the Piss podcast, you get to see how the best strategic minds solve these challenges first hand and if you're already ahead of strategy you just get to listen talk to your peers talk to young fools like us yeah that's right and for episode one we talked to tristan burrell who's the head of strategy at icon communications he's a really good friend of ours and also our former boss and for the first episode of the son of a pitch podcast or the soap podcast our pitch for tristan is about soap just because that seemed poetic what brand have we chosen max We've chosen Solvol, Australia's oldest and most iconic soap brand, and also the toughest, nastiest, grittiest, microbeadiest, toughest soap on your skin humanly possible. We've asked Tristan to sell it to millennials and under. And he does. He comes up with an incredible uh, response to this one Yeah. that I think would work in the world at large. And we're going to try and make it work in the world at large because not only do we go through this process in which we talk about the pitch, but we also put together a bit of a deck at the end. Uh, and then we're going to give it to the companies that we talk about. Let's see if we can make some real world action with this podcast. Today we will be talking to Tristan Burrell, a stalwart of the Australian media game uh, and now the full service game. He started his career uh, as an executive all the way back in 2006, worked his way up for 10 years and 11 months into the SVP position, uh, managing partner of strategy, UM Worldwide New York, became the chief strategy officer at Initiative and then became what he is right now today at this very second 
national head of strategy at Icon. Uh, so yeah, we'll give it over to Tristan to kick it off and tell us a bit about where he started. Thank you. <laughs> Do you even like advertising? Yes. So I think like most people, I didn't know that media existed. Um, I knew I wanted to get into advertising and I didn't really know how to get there. And so I just started applying for random gigs that came up with keywords advertising. And uh, I ended up getting into um, the MFA trainee program. Um, again, not really knowing what that meant. <laughs> ended up getting placed at UM as uh I don't know, as just through that program. So I didn't necessarily choose UM. I don't know if they chose me either. That's just where I ended up getting placed. Um, and then I think I was a little perplexed as to what this world of media was until I discovered the strategy team. And then I realized, oh, okay, I found my North Star. That's what I want to shoot for. But it took a few years of buying terribly. So media buying. What was it about strategy that, that drew you in? Um, I think... I don't want to shit on the other <laughs> roles of the agency, but it was for just me, that you didn't want to buy three hundred episodes of Mash. Right? Well, uh, well, that's one. That's one strategy for uh, buying TV. I've heard. Uh, is that right, Max? It's a great. It's the only strategy, in my opinion. Yeah. Maximize Mash, and you'll maximize reach. <laughs> Are you targeting Kerry Packer? I was targeting. Uh, <laughs> I was targeting kids to buy Lego, but that's <laughs> but that's besides the point. Um, so so tell us how you got in and how you got branded the poorest man in media. That's really, really, really very simple. So I uh, got into UM. I did the traineeship, which was about three months. Um, and then I, they asked me to stay on, which was very nice of them, considering I wasn't very good at buying. Um, and I was a buying assistant on the federal government team at UM in those days. And um, I think my entry level salary was 30 grand. And um, two weeks into the role, I decided to move into an awesome apartment in Darlinghurst with some mates, which based on some poor calculations on my part, ended up costing about 80% of my salary Ooh, after tax. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of canned tomatoes, Deb, instant mashed potato, discounted Javapis from IGA. Um, so is 30 grand like actually before the days of minimum wage? Is that how old you are? That seems hardly legal to me. But I guess yeah. wage, wages have increased since then. I guess there's inflation, but I also maybe maybe we've become nicer as an industry. I don't know. The way I looked at it was I'm getting paid to learn a craft. So I just come from uni where I had to pay to go there. So I was like, well, at least I'm getting paid now. I also, from uni, I worked full-time pretty much while at uni. So this felt like a bit of a break in comparison. So I was pretty happy with that situation. A friend worked at a pub, so he had free beer. Actually, there's a huge... Friday nights at UM in those days were pretty epic too. So we used to have McCann in the building... Um, I think maybe Momentum, a whole bunch of um, McCann Worldwide uh, groups all in one building. And every Friday would be a m pretty much a massive party. We had a rooftop that overlooked the harbour, um, significantly stocked beer fridges, um, KFC and pizza. And I would bring outside friends in. So being the poorest man in media, this was a great chance for me to, um, I don't know, sometimes I was called the camel because I, you never knew when my next meal was going to be. So I'd stock up. <laughs> Get fully loaded for the night ahead, and um, yeah. So then I think that I, I probably I started at the beginning of 2006, and the Christmas party that year um, went through a, a harsh winter 
where I didn't have a doona. A harsh winter. A harsh winter, yeah. So, you know, six months into the role, living in this beautiful apartment in Darlinghurst um, with no heater, um, I, I started wearing all my clothes to bed because I didn't have a doona. Uh, then so someone donated me a doona, which is very lovely of them. Um I had famously had a pair of leather shoes that I wore every day that had holes in them. So when it rained, my shoes would be all squeaky and wet. And there was just an unspoken rule, actually not unspoken, very spoken, I would say it. If we're ever at a media function or if reps ever bring in food, even if you're not hungry, you get one for Tristan. That was kind of the rule. Yeah. So needless to say, <laughs> by the time the Christmas party came around and they had all their goofy awards, I, I won the poorest man in media award. So how did you get rid of your homeless man alter ego? Um, by getting promoted eventually. <laughs> um, so the, I was still in the bottom quintile for some time, I believe. But <laughs> so I, I'm sure winning Young Lions helped with that. Do you want to tell us about what Young Lions is, how you won, how you pulled it off, what your ideas were in the Australian round and in the global round as well? Right. So 06 is when I started. I, I think the first time I entered Young Lions was 08 and I was a buyer then and I didn't get through the first round but I, I maintain to this day that that submission was better um, so I think that's the first uh, learning of, of Young Lions is that it is the high volume of entries it is sort of 50% chance um, and the other 50% Maybe not skill, but something something of more substance than luck. The, the brief, the first year I did it was basically sell more newspapers. No, it was get media buyers to use newspapers more as a channel. So it was a weird trade campaign. I can't remember what my idea was, but I had some convoluted allegory of Plato's cave as my as my insight. So actually, in hindsight, maybe it wasn't a winner. Very deep. <laughs> oh, maybe I'll still go through a my faux intellectual stage of being a strategist because I wasn't actually a strategist. I was a buyer. Is, is that like a thing for strategists? I feel like every strategist at some point goes through some sort of philosophy phase where they get like super intellectual and yeah. start making those kind of... Well, I did do some philosophy at uni. I did... Uh, cultural studies as well so there was a bit of that in there and so I think I was just trying to like what's the smartest thing I know how do I cram it into this and um, and then I think um, you know over time you start to realize okay it's actually smarter to use less words smaller words layman's terms that kind of thing rather than going into the allegory of Plato's cave yeah so the next year I entered it again got through the first round um, and in those days you entered as uh, individually and they called you in on the day with if you got through to the next round and you had to present on the day so I didn't have a presentation prepared because I thought that was jinxing it I'm not, not going to prepare here like an idiot and then not get a call sitting here with a presentation so they called and then I was like oh shit okay now I need to write a presentation so I kind of winged it I think it was pretty sloppy but I was lucky enough to get through the next round which was then the final round for Australia for that they paired people up and so I was lucky enough to be paired with uh, Lauren Kassar now Lauren George and she is a gun and we kind of had very complementary skill sets. I was a bit up in the air and she was very, I don't know, yin and yang, worked well together. Um, and she was already a strategist because I still wasn't a strategist at that point. I was a media planner then. Um, so then uh, we, I think the brief for that was uh, NBN, launching the NBN in Australia. And I can't remember what our strategy was exactly. How long ago was this? Uh, 50 years ago. No. So, yeah, I was going to say it still hasn't launched. When, when's that going to happen? Yeah. my Apparently, I'll get NBN in my street in Bondi uh, in the next month, which is nice. 
because my internet's faster if I hotspot. That would make a good phone. brief, actually. How do we how do we rebrand the NBN as something that exists? It's pretty ironic. Ten years ago, because this was two thousand and nine. So ten years ago, the brief was how to launch the NBN, and I've, I don't think they know how to launch it now. But we got through. And another learning there was most of us had pretty much the same idea at the heart, and it all came down to the poetry and like how well it was articulated and how clean you like challenge insight opportunity platform um so it really came down to just how tight was that articulation um so we got through then we went to can that's when you get the intense 24-hour brief thing you meet people from all over the world and everyone's super smart and you feel like an idiot and you're there with no money too because you know you i was just a media planner wasn't prepared to go there so you kind of um i think our hotel had free breakfast so you just eat 10 croissants in the morning and hope it lasts you so what, what you're saying is you, you didn't only learn strategy at um but you actually learned a strategy for survival like actually how to survive with no money that's how all. i learned strategy it was like a beautiful constraint there you go oh, that's innovation really... comes out of limitation do you think being poor and being being as skinny as you were made you hungrier to get through that process and win it to get to the next stage? literally and metaphorically yeah yeah. <laughs> you get a 24-hour brief. We got briefed on the World Food Programs, Fill the Cup Initiative, which is about feeding hungry kids around the world. We had no ideas. We had terrible ideas. It basically got to the night before, and I think we were scheduled to present at maybe 3 in the afternoon-ish or something like that. Night before, no idea. We are just like, nah, can't crack it. Nothing. And then um, the next morning, Lauren's boyfriend was ranting about coins being annoying or something and we we're like oh, and we then it just kind of opened up this discussion of why do we even have penny like america still has pennies i think we we're talking about one cent euros and how obsolete it seems like vending machines won't even take them and then we just realized oh, that could be a really interesting mechanic for a charity campaign you know everyone thinks they don't have spare change but everyone has got this you know these coins they can't even use what if we made a movement to abolish the penny and had all those pennies feed hungry kids around the world so that became sort of the idea that was the glue of the idea that we had a much better articulation of at the time 10 years ago i can't really remember it very well but um we presented it and we won but this here's the other thing i don't think the competition's entirely fair because everyone has to present in english so you kind of have a massive advantage just as a result of being able to speak English. Um, and especially, what, like I said before, when so much so much of it comes down to that, how well articulated it is, it's a bit of an unfair advantage. In saying that, I accepted the gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll take it. Pretty cool. I think that was the first year they gave a physical medal too. So it was um, very satisfying. Is it a lion? It's, it's like a gold medal with a lion on it. Right. There's no chocolate inside. There's no chocolate inside. That that absolutely <laughs> sucks. Okay, so you won you won the, the, the lion, the young lion, and then you get back to Australia and everyone's freaking out about how much of a hot talent you are. Oh, yeah. The headline was the email got sent around the office because I had to go on stage and get the thing. And off the back of being the poorest man in media, the subject line was, hot off the press from Cannes, Tristan owns a suit. <laughs> So I, I guess the question is, why did you go back to UM after all of that? Why did you stay there? Why did I stay there? Yeah, because there weren't people biting. Where, where? Yeah, hundred percent, they were. At you? So at that point in my career, I'd worked with a lot of people, and at that level, there's always demand for people at that kind of level across agencies, and you see people move all the time for like uh, five or ten grand or whatever. But I found that it always evened out. You shouldn't. I'm not shooting on you. And I, I generally feel and still do feel that most agencies 
are, are pretty much the same, 90% the same, and the main difference is the people. So why would I just gonna go work somewhere else for another five grand um, with people that may or may not be, you know, as good as these people I work totally. with now? So that was a big part of it for me. That the Young Lions thing helped me get into strategy. So I wasn't a strategist yet, but um, a head of strategy at the time, Nathan Brown, who's a legend, got shout me out then. To Nathan. Shout out to Nathan Brown. He got me working on some strategy projects. Then I sort of took on a hybrid role of half strat, half planning, and then uh, eventually got to be full time strategy. So I was getting everything I, I needed there. And now it's time for a break. Are you a creative soul who feels crushed by the irrepressible reality of hilarious delusion you live in every day of your life? Perhaps you know more about XL formatting than your significant other's private parts, resulting in a deep and throbbing pain emanating from your heart as you constantly ponder your sycophantic rise to the top of your organizational food chain. You may have even found yourself tapping your foot non-stop in the doctor's office as the pulsating flow of blood from your head convinces you that the work-related stress disease you read about in National Geographic one time is about to make your eyes pop from your skull atop a geyser of hot steam. Well, have I got a deal for you. Miami Ad School are offering a strategic planning boot camp that is almost sure to guarantee you a life filled with ever-changing, mind-bending creative challenges that help you make an actual difference within the world. Not only does it put you in touch with some of the world's best strategic minds, like the ones on this podcast, but you'll be investing in a chance to start your life anew. And the best thing... Given you're a loyal listener to the Son of a Pitch podcast, we'll waive your application fee so there's absolutely no risk to you whatsoever. Just email us at podcastsoap at gmail.com if you're interested. That's podcastsoap, S-O-A-P, podcastsoap at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the good stuff. Right, so foot's in the door, you're doing the strat thing now, you're getting your first briefs, like how, how, did, how did that feel to you and what, like, what was the energy going into that kind of role? How did you kind of carve out your own, your own little niche there? It was pretty exciting because also, I mean, you guys never had to do this. So maybe you did, Max, I don't know. But um, account queries, like all these things you had to do as a buyer I, I and media planner. Yeah, and as a bad media buyer, I had tons of them. And um, just not having to do that was massive. But then the idea of, oh, okay, so here's, here's a, I'm not going to name names, but here's a story that me and some of my friends always refer to where it felt like a real victory because I did, I fucked up once as a buyer and my boss at the time literally said, you're not paid to think. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. Guys, a fucking asshole. Assholes. Dickheads. Come back. So at this point in my career, I was like, guess what, motherfucker? I'm paid to think. So that was kind of like a real was a moment point. for me. Yeah, I yeah. was like, yes, yes. That's like literally my job now. And one of the first brands I worked on was Xbox. And then one of the first campaigns I worked on won an Effie. So it was like, it felt like real momentum was happening do you remember that what was the campaign about it was launching connect xbox connect and um we were the only country i think not to use the global creative and ours was more about i mean it wasn't a super sexy campaign it was pretty functional it was more about just getting people to try it it's one of those you don't believe it until you try it kind of thing so we just try to amplify that that out as much as we could and i think it was one of the most successful launches around the globe for that product and we were the only one that didn't use the global assets so it made a it made a tidy fe entry and we got a silver though i think but yeah that was nice 
Um, and then I did a bit on Microsoft and yeah, a few other. We launched UE Car Insurance into Australia. That was pretty fun. So how did you end up at New York? What was the transition like? Who brought you over there? So I got to go back to Cannes the following year as a part of the prize for winning. And um, me, my boss was there as well. He was like, hey, you should try some, we should, you should do a stint overseas. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I really wanted to do Japan. And for whatever reason, that didn't work out. But my, the guy that got me into strategy, Nathan Brown, had moved to New York, I think the year prior or something. He was like, why don't you come work here for two months? So I did that. Um, and that was their first mistake because then once I got there, I don't know what the official story is, but I'm sure enough time has passed. But he was like, yeah, can I, can I work here? And he's like, yeah. Um, <laughs> so he, he brought me over. So again. How do you think he would retell it from his perspective? Um, I'm not sure. Just like you turned up on his doorstep. It's like, I'm here now. Yeah, there was some politics to jump through, internal politics mm. at UM, because, you know, you can't just like steal people from different offices, but um, we got to an agreement. So I moved there the following year. So I think that was, I did two months over there in 2011, and then I moved over six months later. How did you go about negotiating the pay and all of that type of stuff and figuring out whether or not you could have enough money to survive? I winged it massively. I think, to be honest... The, uh, the, not so much the award of winning Porous Man in Media, but he had no money. Everything was more. So there wasn't really, uh, I'm not going to pretend I had a real, you know, hard time, but I know I could survive on not much money. So I felt like oh, I could do that in New York too. But at this point I had a healthy amount of cash. Um, you know, I was able to eat three meals a day, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and also luckily at that time, the exchange rate was dollar for dollar. So... I was able to negotiate a salary that was pretty much the same dollar figure that I was getting in Australia, but then that dollar goes further in the US. Everything, basically when I moved over there, it felt like everything was about 40% cheaper. So the number was the same, but then the cost of living was actually lower based on the, the exchange rate at that time. The only thing I tried to negotiate hard on, which was stupid, was because uh, I'd heard rumors of only two weeks annual leave or whatever. Sure. And I was like, well, I'm going to need at least four. And they were like, yeah, relax, dude, you, you get five. So that, it's a weird thing over there. <laughs> but they gave you four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'll take that back. Um, <laughs> Oldest trick in the book. <laughs> yeah, it was a weird, I don't know if it's like company to company or what. I think maybe two weeks is the legal minimum. But If you uh, work at Amazon, you get like four hours. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you, you figured out that you can make enough money, you've got enough holidays, you, you feel pretty good about the whole thing. What was it like as far as the culture was concerned and how did they approach strategy and what was the agency culture like? How did you navigate that? There was definitely some culture shock. I think I was lucky. I mean, if you speak to a lot of Australians that moved to New York, um, a lot of people had a worse experience than I did. Some moved back almost immediately. Others just go there and deal with it, but don't really enjoy it. I was lucky because I had Nathan as my boss. So I had like a like-minded person and we kind of worked as a duo quite a bit. The people I was working with, so I was still with UM, but over there they have an office called J3, which um, looks specifically after Johnson & Johnson. I don't know how much they spend now, but in those days, I think it was about 800 mil in media just in North America, just in the US. So the size of the J3 office was actually bigger than UM Australia, which is kind of crazy. But that was kind of the first challenge is the challenge of scale. One of the first things I recognized was the curse of a big budget. And with big budget comes risk aversion and you can afford to do a lot of TV and you know clients know what they're going to get off the back of doing it, that TV. Um, so why take a risk was often kind of the culture you had to fight against. But then the silver lining of that was the big budget meant that if you could carve off 
I don't know, 5% of the budget to do something to add some sizzle, that's a healthy amount of money to do something real. So we did a lot of content over there, a lot of longer form content. Um, we have a, had a really good production team in the agency we call J3 Studios and they did really, really great stuff. And I think the advantage of being in the US as well is like you've got more content partnership opportunities than the block. Um, <laughs> yeah. You've got, you've got Hollywood right there. And so the connection to Hollywood is real. Like we went to meetings at CAA, the, the talent agency mm. in, in LA and would meet with creators like Frank Marshall who produced a lot of Indiana Jones mm. movies. He directed Arachnophobia. Wow. <laughs> Um, he, he, the arachnophobia. The films he directed weren't quite as uh, good as the ones he produced, and you know other people like uh, what's name Eva Longoria and like all these other people. So you're you're dealing with like really talented people and can make an actual cultural impact versus the restrictions I think in Australia of like all right we've got MasterChef we've got the block and you can throw some sponsorship billboards on this thing and that thing and, and now wife know. swap on Channel Seven wife swap that is not a plug for wife swap <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing was coming from Australia and it's specifically coming from UM and like I mentioned parties every Friday I met my wife at work very very social it felt like an extension of high school how'd that happen yeah how, how much detail hey. <laughs> well she had a real crush on me and then no i don't know i'm not going into that so that's, that's the version batting, batting eyelashes over the uh over the train well, i'm gonna date there. myself it was on msn messenger i think was Ooh, there she sent the, you a nudge front of the, no i i orchestrated a whole thing anyway moving to new york it was the opposite um i found that the office was a lot less a lot less social and people kind of had work persona versus social persona and so gone were the days of friday afternoon drinks with the whole agency but people would go out in smaller pockets um so socially it was a bit hard at first. Is to it like, harder to trust people if they have that kind of veneer? A little bit, but then I spent quite a bit of time. So I was, I was ultimately there for five years and then it just took a bit longer to get to know everyone. And once I did, I'm like, they're all fucking legends. I think if you joined UM in 2006, you'd get really drunk with everyone on a Friday and then you're best friends with everyone, you know, the following week kind yeah. of thing. That didn't really happen that way there. And I think also just the way the US is with a lot of, I'm not going to get into, you know, <laughs> all that stuff, but it feels like a, a much more slippery slope into finding yourself in a real tough position without a job. Whereas in Australia, I feel like there's, you've got a, a few more safety that's in place so there's it's just a bit more intense the scale is big and everyone's a specialist that doesn't want to move outside of their lane because it's too risky so that you're kind of working with this big slow moving ship and so it takes a lot to really try and get it to move in a in a different direction that was kind of the overarching challenge but you start by finding pockets of where people want to do shit differently and you go all in on that so some of the best experiences i had there were going in on smaller brands with smaller budgets like Visine eye drops and Rogaine and that kind of thing and getting some small wins there before you know going on and tackling the Johnson's babies and the band-aids and all that kind of stuff do you feel like the work on those types of accounts is very expected like people what know exactly what they're going to do before they do it yeah and there's just a lot more layers and stakeholders and I think a lot of the work that comes out of it is still good but I think a lot of it is a lot more creatively driven so hero tvc and then it's more about what are the little things you do around it? Whereas on those smaller brands, it felt more like a holistic in partnership with a creative agency. What, what are we trying to do here? And really like building an idea that happens to come to life in TV, but it's an idea that lives well beyond that. So we started kind of having different ways we approached briefs. Some were like TVC first versus, you know, a holistic idea. And we kind of had different ways of tackling each of those. Got it. Do you feel like you 
hit your ceiling at all. Look at the David Drogas, etc., who have kind of started their own agencies and done like really incredible things. Where do you think you would have gone had you not come back? That's a very good question. There's so much opportunity over there. Again, that's the that's the plus side of the scale thing, is you can be a specialist and just go up, 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 up. Whereas here you kind of get to a head of and then unless you want to get into like general management, there's not a lot there. Um, so over there, there's heaps. I think if I was still there, I probably would have crossed over a little more into the content world. I think that was the juiciest stuff I was getting excited about by the time I left. So really bringing big ideas to life through really interesting content partnerships and that kind of thing is what I was starting to really get excited about. And it's something you could do there that you just couldn't do here. Yeah. So why did, why did you come to Icon and join join us? Was it because of the the great young talent that you'd get to work with? I came despite uh, what I'd heard about uh, Max and Vince. Mm, smart. <laughs> so like I said, I didn't move around a lot in terms of going to different agencies and that is because I do think most agencies are pretty much the same and the differentiator is people. It's, I think it's like uh, sports teams, right? You, you root for the jersey but ultimately everyone moves around and it's just the people on the team that's, yeah. Um, and so I'd worked with Pia Coyle, shout out to Pia, uh, back in the early UM days and we just worked together really, really well. And we'd always talked about our working relationship a bit like copywriter, art director. So I'd, I'd be strategy and should be media implementation and it's like i'd say the fluffy stuff and she'd bring it to life and it would be really freaking awesome and so we'd always talked about working together again and then the opportunity came up and i decided to look into it met a few people and uh the full service thing was a sweetener i didn't know much about that and and so that was maybe the the extra little bit that got me hooked more to do more things to control like kind of more stuff to play with yeah like i genuinely I'm glad I did the media side first and uh, this is just my opinion but I feel like depending where you do it and who you do it with it can give you a more holistic view of how an idea can live and breathe so I get super excited about that but I had always had in the back of my mind like I'm talking about most of the picture but then there's this part I never get to influence which is the ad uh, sometimes you influence it a bit but it's more like the thing you point to and go oh that's the ad like you know trying to explain to your parents what do you do and they're like oh no I saw that new ad and you're like yeah I didn't do that that's that's the thing where it's hard you don't want to over explain it and sound super pretentious but then simplifying media to like they bought the ad like there's yeah. so much more to it than that like yeah. it's more about connections and that kind of thing which I think is really really interesting but um, yeah to be able to look at the whole thing and some of the stuff we've been working on since I started it's been pretty satisfying to see it kind of be a single-minded vision that comes to life across everything. So you're 100% believe in the full service kind of vision now. You've bought into it. I think it has a role. I don't think it's for everyone. No, I think it's. I don't think it's for every client. Is what I mean by that. Um, <laughs> no, I I like full service. I think there's some interesting. Uh, Get a lot of people who are really good in in one lane. Like you'll find a lot of brand planners and stuff who are really good at brand planning, but you throw them a connections kind of framework or something that they have to put together, and then they might be treading water. Do you feel like the future of planning is kind of it, when a planner actually does brand planning and connections planning and all of those things? Because I know sometimes in the past you've said a strategist is a strategist and they can figure out any plan regardless whether it's creative or no. What do, you, what do you reckon? I say yes. There's somebody in the audience back there heckling us. <laughs> no, I think there are definitely people who are media strategists. There are definitely people who are brand strategists. But I think a good strategist should be able to elevate their game to be able to translate into all those different areas. So strategy at its heart is really just 
creative problem solving. So you should be able to apply that thought process and discipline to different you know, types of challenges. I think the trick is then knowing the output. Those are those are skills that can be learnt. That's more in the detail. I think the fundamental role of a strategist is transferable across those disciplines. I've always just, that was actually one of the things in New York was I'd always just said strategy. Yeah. And then I went to New York and it's like, oh, you're a comms planner or you're this or you're that. And it's like, no, just strategy. Like, what's the problem? We'll solve it and we'll give you the, well, that sounded like a bit of ice. Um, <laughs> no, we'll solve the problem and then we'll tell you what you need to do to fix it. That That's all we do. Yeah. We call it whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> so you're going to apply that same mode of thinking to our problem that we've given you today. You're going to oh, solve good it segue. for Solvol. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what would be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Woo. Busy hands, busy hands, need solve all. Yes, busy hands need solve all because only solve all gets hands really clean. So get busy hands, clean as this the original pumice bar, a scratchy, itchy soap that is so heavy duty it is sold by the likes of Bunnings and other hardware stores across Australia. Solvol is a soap of a different era a time where dirty hands was a sign of a job well done. However, millennials, who have been branded the softest generation, have moved away from pumice soap and Solvol, instead favouring liquid soap and nice-smelling fragrance bars. Our problem? How do you get millennials to buy Solvol? As always, we've asked our guests to respond in the son-of-a-pitch taking-the-piss format. That's problem, insight, strategy, and solution. Let's see how they go. All right. So I've just written down some points and I thought maybe we could chat like we do in our day jobs. Maybe some organic chatter will come off the back of this. Maybe you can build on my thinking. I don't know. So the first thing I did, well, I'm not going to lie. It wasn't the first thing I did. It was sort of the last thing I did just to sense check. But um, in terms of telling this story from beginning to end, it makes sense to talk about it first, was really just try and size up what the task actually is. So I made a few assumptions given that I didn't have access to the Solvol client to ask some questions to. But if the category is 530 mil and you said their share is currently just under 2%, I've just assumed it's 1.7, whatever. And that means getting to 2% share means an extra 1.5 million in incremental sales. And if I was to use twin packs as the standard unit, that would be 410,000 twin packs, which means 68,000 new customers, assuming people use one bar per month depending how dirty they are. How do you feel about those numbers? you got a funny look on your face. No, no, no. Is it because you made I, them up? Is no, no. <laughs> I, I, we did. We t- we definitely did make that up. Yeah. Um, we have given you a brief of $3 million here, which I think is far more than Solvol's ever going to have in their entire existence as a brand. But I'll do it for half. <laughs> I didn't get into that detail. So, but it, so it, it, it's just it's good to see that you went to the numbers first. So you've actually broken down this problem into a pretty round number there, 68,000 new customers for Solvol. Yeah. And maybe it's wrong. Maybe I did it too quickly, but I think it it shows that it's doable. That was the main thing I wanted to get out of it. What are we actually trying to do here? I think if we're saying we need to get 68,000 new customers, I can kind of see why that might be doable over a year. Let's do it. And also for the purpose of the brief, I kind of made the assumption that to keep it clean, let's say we already have tradies. If we've got that 1.7%, maybe they are just all tradies. So let's assume we've already got them and we're tapped out there. So we need to figure out where growth is going to come from. So then I looked at the brand and just through the lens of culture, 
100 years is a long time. Lots changed over 100 years. Mm. It was the, you know, 100 years ago, my grandfather probably built his house with his bare hands. Um, <laughs> now I barely build my IKEA furniture with my bare hands. So a shift of this culture from do it yourself to do it for me. And I think there's some interesting little nuggets in your brief around being too hard to handle and it doesn't look nice and it's kind of like yeah that's the damn point it's like, scratchy yeah it hurts your skin when it's you use it because you're meant to it's because it's if your hand is dirty enough that's what you need and so that's the problem our hands aren't getting dirty enough essentially and so the problem i kind of landed on is we just aren't working hard enough to warrant such a powerful soap mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's it well that's not even that, start to the problem I, I think so basically and, and I, what I don't like is when I go to the website and I see there's a few attempts, I think, to make more kind of mainstreamy products. I think ditch that. Don't become like everyone else. Own what you are. Stick to your roots. So the issue fundamentally is we just aren't doing enough with our hands. We've gone soft. Most of us don't know how to change a tire. Most of our toolboxes at home have a few Allen keys in them. Phillips head screwdriver and a butter knife. You're not saying millennials have gone soft. Oh, I was oh, going to say, I'm not going to say the word millennial at any point in this response. We'll get we'll get some hate mail for that for sure. I'm a millennial. We're all millennials at this point. Can I think the actually, youngest millennial is like 60 now. Can you define what a millennial is? Can anyone? It's born at or around the millennium, right? No. <laughs> are, you, are you a millennial? Yes. I'm a millennial. Yeah. That's weird. Right? It's uh. all, yeah, let's not ever say the word millennial. You're cool my flow there. I was, <laughs> sorry, getting, I was, sorry, getting, I was happy with yeah, that articulation. We can, we can. What do you have in up. your toolbox at home, Max? I don't have. How a many toolbox. Allen keys you have? I don't know what an Allen key is. It's the thing you get when you build Is it a turny thing. It's when you do flat pack furniture from IKEA and you get a, that little thing. That Man, comes I get with koala. It. I'm one step ahead <laughs> of IKEA. So that's what a millennial is, I guess. So there's a desire, I think, to do this stuff though. So while we're currently not, you know, doing these things as much as we used to. Um, I think there's an inherent guilt in not doing it. So we want to be good at this stuff. Um, us building furniture from Ikea is like a kid building Lego. There's this kind of joy of building, pride of creation thing that happens that kind of shows that it's in us. We want to do it, but we're just not really doing it enough. So I think there's, a, there's another audience segment that we can talk about, and it is basically me. Maybe not you, Max. If you don't mm. even have an Allen key, mm. it's not you. I feel embarrassed um, <laughs> to say that I don't know what that is. So it's not a do-it-yourself, but it's maybe do-some-yourself. And so the do-some-yourself audience is basically me. There's millions of us. And it's this type of audience where I want to do more than I currently do. Um, mm. I want to have more to brag about than flat pack furniture. I want to be able to say, yeah, I restored that piano or you know something kind of cool, which I don't currently have. I have no cred that my grandfather would be proud of. And I think that's the way I started to land on an articulation of this insight is like often in terms of, I don't want to get into arguments about toxic masculinity or anything like that, but in terms of just being a fully functioning adult, not even mm. a man, an adult, I think the filter I always go to is like, what would my grandfather think? What Whether was your grandfather's name? Bert, Albert Bert. from Bermagui. Bert Burrell. Yeah. That's a great name. Max is also from Bermagui. DSY. All right. Yeah, so yeah. I sized them up. Kind of. And um, there's enough of these guys where that if we can just get 5% of DSYers to buy um, Solvol twice a year, you got your sales result you need. So let's go all in on these guys um, and let's exploit that guilt that they're currently feeling in Ooh. not being a fully functioning adult, not doing their grandfather proud. And let's help them 
feel like or get inspired to learn how to get themselves out of a jam if they need to, learn how to change a fucking tire if they need to without having to have that feeling of, oh, is there a grown-up I can call? All right. I like this. I like this. I like this. So the idea is coming up. I'm, I'm interested to see whether or not it's going to be condescending at all as far as... A- oh. I'm not going to use the word empowering. (laughs) That's what you're getting at. Um, But the guilt, guilt, go over guilt because guilt guilt is a really interesting kind of lever to pull in a strategy. Yeah. I feel like it can be sort of an evil one to pull, but I think in this case, look, I, I don't think it's a nasty, let's make people feel inadequate and therefore, you know, put more makeup on or whatever it is. I think this is more genuinely trying to uh, fix a tension point in a young person's life. They're trying to be an adult and there's a bit mm. of a gap there. So let's help them get across that gap. And so first that grandfather thing kind of just became a way to articulate it and then I kind of got literal with it. And I do think there is this idea of this thought of, geez, what would grandpa think of me? If I'm stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire and I don't know what to do, I'm like, geez, what, what would my grandfather think of me right now? And this is what we want to solve. And so acknowledging that grandfathers in culture act as this mental compass for adulting but even morals and like am I a stand-up guy kind of thing um and so kind of got to this insight of most of us don't deserve Solvol but we long to feel like we do like our grandfathers before us so that's kind of the core insight behind the whole thing you just just read that out read it out one more time time. in in my um radio voice in your radio voice (laughs) most of us don't deserve Solvol but we long to feel like we do like our grandfathers before us you can put some music behind that if you want. Just yeah, give it a little nice articulation. We actually will. We actually get, will get do some that goosebumps now. in there. Um, but off the back of that, the opportunity. Um, so I'm not doing the piss. I guess I'm doing the. That's, a, that's okay. Um, reframe Solvol from an outdated soap product to a badge of honor, a symbol of a good job done. And so, yes, it's a bit ugly. Yes, it's not the prettiest soap. It's not a sop, but it's a badge of honor. Like if you got Solvol on your thing, you must mm. have been doing something legit. So you want to have it proud up there. You want it. It's like a your bathroom shelf is your mantle, and that's your fucking trophy mm. that you did something good today. I think this is where. I, so off the back of. Uh, so I wrote this a while ago, and you mm. kept postponing me. So it's a little not fresh in the brain. But one thing that happened in culture during that time was the uh, Gillette ad. Mm. Um, so should I say something controversial to get you some listeners? Yeah, but uh, no, I'm not gonna do that. Do it personally. I don't like the uh, execution of that, but I, I like the conversation it's trying to have, and I do think it made me think a little bit more about this in terms of I don't want to go too far into the toxic masculinity of space of this idea. Mm. It's not about you're not a man, be a man. That's not what it is. It's more uh, being an adult and feeling good about. Um, Self. It's more about being handy, right? Yes, I'm taking care of myself like a real human should, like an adult should. So the opportunity reframe Solvol from an outdated soap product to a badge of honor, symbol of a good job done. Mm. And I think there's maybe some similar, not quite the same thing, but a bit like you know a hard earned thirst, you know that kind of VB sure. area. Not quite VB, but VB area. Now I know Max, you call this a cop out. It's not consumer facing, is how I'm going to articulate this platform. Um, would, would brief it into creative, and they'll come up with something fancy. But the sure. way I've articulated it is just simply, what would Grandpa do? Or WWGD? Yeah, uh, and nice. so that's kind of the single-minded thought going behind uh, the campaign here. What would Grandpa do? And so. The implementation of this, a few kind of ideas across the spectrum of. Do media, you think people want to smell like their grandpa? 
Oh, I thought about that. The, the man your man could smell like. Yeah. He smells like brill cream and black coffee. <laughs> and cigarettes. Cigarettes. <laughs> Rolling. Mothballs. Witty blues. Yeah. <laughs> and just faint farm-like smell. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't quite get out of that path. I think there's something really interesting, not to go down another whole other strategy route, but I think there is paired, paired with the guilt of not feeling like you're living up to your grandfather's image of what a fully formed adult is, I think is also the idea that we don't treat our elderly with the respect that they deserve. So I think part of this idea could be actually let's get grandfathers to mentor us. So let's create content of grandfathers that responds to the jams that we're trying to get out of. So a video of grandfather telling you how to change a fucking tire or um, all of these kind of obscure potentially. Uh, so maybe not the obvious ones, but more the infrequently asked questions. We'll have a community of grandfathers there to give you the answer. Oh, on tap. So you're actually going to have yeah. live grandfathers. I think an element of it would be on tap. So I'm thinking like an execution where it's like, you know, I've got a, I don't know, my my table's uneven and other than putting a barcoaster under it, I don't know how to fix it. Yeah. Maybe I put a photo of that hashtag, what will grandpa do? Grandfather and, hotline. Grandfather hotline, yeah. It's almost like hire a hubby a little bit. Uh, but uh, And then the community of grandfathers will then give you the advice you need to do it. Um, so I think there's a baseline content mm. strategy around there, but then I think there's the more the real-time response thing as well. There could be a, a more of a call-out where you can rally to get your grandfather cast as one of these community of grandfathers. Um, partner with Bunnings, they already have a lot of this content. So I think either we get and I think actually, you know, some grandfathers probably work at Bunnings. They actually already sell Solvol, so they beat yeah. me to it. That was one of my ideas was distribute there. They already got that going. But I think even with existing videos from a, from just a partnership point of view, partner with Bunnings to have Solvol at the end of each of those videos. So it's kind of you're just building that association of this is the thing you do after that thing you've been meaning to do. And so basically trying to get Solvol either in the bathroom or in the toolbox next to the WD-40, it's just part of that category of things you have as a functioning adult in your house okay so that's the, that's the core of the idea i didn't go too far into execution but that's kind of like the, the key ingredients one interesting in extension i thought could be kind of cool maybe it goes a bit too far but if you really wanted to tap into this cultural tension around us not taking care of the older generation got to this idea of helping helping the generation so basically can a portion of the proceeds go to restoring retirement homes, nursing homes, that kind of thing. Or do we even do retirement home internships where you help renovate the place under the guidance of this wiser generation? So you could be really nice content off the back of that. So that's kind of an add-on. Doesn't necessarily have to be in there for it to work, but it could take it a bit further, get a bit more a bit more social cause happening there. But yeah, that's basically it. So if we get if we get enough of these do some yourself type of people like myself feeling more confident about how we can do it by tapping into the voice of the grandfather, I think we can move the needle to get, you know, at least four or 5% of them to buy some Solvol and that gets you a 2% share. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant strategy. Thank you so much for putting that together, Tristan. I reckon that actually would work. Uh, and if Solvol is out there, they should probably contact us to get in touch and uh, get the deck and we, we might be able to set them up with a good campaign. What, what do you think, Tristan? What would Grandpa do? He would definitely <laughs> buy that campaign. I also thought about like what I... I'm just picturing a fucking bathroom cabinet <laughs> with Solvol, Brill Cream, and like just all <laughs> that comb, that you know that comb with yeah, the, yeah, yeah. you slide your hand in and it goes over. Yeah. See, this is the thing that we thought you were going to do. We thought you were going to go down that whole uh, kind of renaissance in the, the barbershop kind of world, that type of stuff, 
people are looking back at leather jackets yeah. now. I've seen people smoking pipes in Newtown, which is ridiculous. <laughs> I think I probably the gut reaction is to go there. I think you can never, you can't say. I don't think you can ever make that the phrasing of the campaign or like, you know, say we're a cool brand. You can't, you kind of have to let the hipsters decide for themselves. But I think by tapping into an authentic kind of angle like this, the hipsters will probably get involved. Venerate the grandpas. Yeah. Let's call our grandfather. I think we should. So thank you to Tristan Burrell for coming on the podcast today and giving us a bit of a rundown over his uh, history, his career, some of the tumultuous times, some of the uh, really good times, and obviously delivering what is one of the best strategic pitches we've had on this podcast, aka the very first one. So thank you, Tristan. (laughs) (laughs) We will see you on Monday if you don't Maybe none of this was recorded. (laughs) (laughs) No, I... uh, Oh, no. All right, see you next week. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a Son of a Pitch podcast. My name is Vince. And my name is Max. And we're both planners living in Sydney, Australia. A big thanks to Helga Diamond and Miami Ad School for supporting the show. And if you want to get that $100 fee waived for Miami Ad School, please drop us a line at podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's podcast, S-O-A-P, at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch.